Welcome to Gender Meowster Podcast Network. Genderful is a talk show featuring non-binary and trans folks discussing various topics and special interests. We kindly remind our listeners that no person is a monolith of identities. All opinions are the speaker's own. This show airs live on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash gender meowster and VODs with show notes can also be found on YouTube. Content warnings for this episode include religion, transphobia, dysphoria, and possible reappropriated slurs. So hi, everyone. This is Gender Master. I use they, them pronouns. My furry co-host, Nefertiti, seems to be napping somewhere else in the house today. I am going to let my illustrious guest introduce herself. Hi, everyone. My name is Samantha Bosco. Hi. I'm really excited to be here. This is my first ever podcast interview. And I'm grateful that is a that <clears throat> that it is a T for T moment. It's really special to me. So thank you so much, Jack, for having me here. I'm 35 years old. I live in New York, in what is stolen Gaigohono or Cayuga Nation lands. I am a trans woman. I am a, a Cornell PhD candidate. I'm a parent. I am a person, a community member, an activist, drag performer, skater chick. I don't know. I have everything. I have a million hobbies. <laughs> Can't contain me. <laughs> it's it's just like the ADHD urge to catch yet another hobby every year. It's like, what's this year's hobby? Let's find a new one. I just oh my gosh. I'm so excited to have you here. What a pleasure. My goodness. So the first couple of questions I have are just about your experiences as a youth, as it were, your history or lineage of transness and then we have so many topics to talk about I, I i i don't even know where to begin i'm gonna try to follow my order that i've typed out and probably won't work and that'll be fine what are some things that you trace back to your youth that indicated you might be trans one day oh wow okay so i don't really, i don't have the exact age of this but probably around age five six Definitely have memories and there's photographic evidence where I would willingly let myself and enjoy the process of being dressed up as a girl by my sister, my older sister. And because I really wanted to hang out with her and her friends. And so the only way that she would let me do that is if they could dress me up and call me Samantha. And part of it was like very shameful. I was like, this is ridiculous. I just want to be seen as a person and hang out like instead of being objectified and, and mocked. But I also loved it because it got, it got me the attention I wanted. And so that was like one very early thing. And then I would just say probably things didn't really resurface in that way until puberty and where all kinds of internal chemistry was changing. And I was just started to have lots and lots of really strange thoughts, thoughts that I, I don't know. I wasn't sure if other people were having them, but I was really <laughs> definitely too terrified to ask other people. Thoughts like just praying, not like praying because I didn't pray back then, but just going to bed, like really hoping to wake up in a different body. And yeah, and things along that line. And still, this was in the early 2000s. I grew up from a child in the 90s, born in 86. So trans people, like the word trans did not exist in my language, probably not even until I was like, 30 years old. So I had no idea what I was. All I knew is that I wanted to be different, that I was much, I did not understand men or masculinity at all. 
I, I loved all my, my, my female friends. I wanted to just like watch them and be like them. And I guess some other things like later in high school, I would come to high school, like, I guess you would call it cross-dressing, but I was like a huge, like skater punk and goth. So we're like fishnets and painted nails and like wearing skirts. And I was in a high school band and I always loved when we perform, I would dress up in dresses. That was like super fun for me. So yeah, those are probably some of the, from 18 and, and earlier, all the different signs I had that I was not like most of my other friends. Thank you so much for sharing. So how has your relationship to gender evolved over time? Obviously you grew up to be a wonderful trans feminine being. How did you go from there to here? Oh my gosh, wow, what a question. So I went through some serious gender journey, I'd say. At age 18, I became a parent and that changed a lot in my life. My daughter is 16 years old now and I'm 35. And so for a long time, I did not really think about my gender beyond my parental roles and all the things that were attended with that as being a dad. And then I'd say that as I started to get a little bit older, towards more towards my late 20s, I started getting really interested and involved in, in, I've always been like involved in nature, but I started getting like really involved in teaching about nature. And I was doing these like wilderness, I was like teaching youth how to do things like starting fires with no matches and how to identify plants and all this like very, very practical, what we call primitive skills, but I really hate that word primitive, but all these like earth-based skills. And, and there's a huge contingency in that where people are really obsessed with gender and gender roles and gender archetypes about what masculine people are supposed to do, what feminine people are supposed to do. And I got hooked onto that. I was like very curious about gender. I really want to, there was this like huge void in my life. What is gender? Who am I? What am I doing? And so I thought, oh, I'll have, I'll get trained in gender. I'll let someone else tell me what I'm doing and I'll get, I'll pay money. I'll get the training. I'll start like learning how to do rites of passage for boys. And I'll be this really awesome guide, like spiritual guide. And, and I'll also learn how to be a man myself. This is going to be like, great. I'm gonna, and just doing it, I went through the motions. I did three years of this and it was really I think at first I, I thought I found it to be very exciting and interesting, but also at the same time, I never felt like I had a, could really understand it or quite get into it. It was very confusing to me. And I always just still never really felt like I fit in. So I guess that's like to say that like I went, I tried to be a man so hard. And then after that, I like, I was a farmer and a homesteader and I was like doing all like the manly things. I was splitting wood. I was like maintaining a fire in the home front. I was digging in the soil. Like I was doing all these things that made me, that I think I was told were things that good. I was also a husband at this time. I was just like really trying to play the part to do the things that I was told that I was supposed to do. And none of it really made sense. I really, and I also, I loathed all of it really. None of, none of it really felt like me. I felt like it all felt like a chore. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I've had, I would say three, I would, yeah, I would say I have three major heteronormative relationships in my life. And after the third one didn't work out, I was, so I've had a, a child with someone, I've been married to someone different and I've also been engaged to somebody. And when that last engagement did not work out, I was like, this is, I think, I think I need to be honest with myself. And I even told this person, this person admitted to me that they were like, they were interested in perhaps continuing our relationship through having an open relationship. And I was like, that's cool. I'm, I can do that. Just so you know, I'd want to also date people like multiple genders. Like this isn't even about my gender. This is about just me accepting my own queerness, which has been 
a threat of my life since I was 14. And this person, they let their homophobia show and that was like really uncomfortable for them. And that was like a really strong uh, signal to me that this was like really not the right relationship for me. And then I really had something I need to go further and explore. And so it wasn't until I was 33 that I really started to like really self-identify as queer from a sexuality perspective. But then also probably about a year later, I started to do drag in 2019. And that is when I had my very first as an adult owning gender euphoria. I started performing as Ginger Vicious, which I hope we'll get to talk to later today and or later in this episode. And it was amazing. Just like the the total euphoria I felt and also knowing that it was a little bit different. I wasn't just like one of the other queens who were at the, the people I knew who were mostly gay men is that they would say things like, oh, like, I can't wait to like, go untuck. And I was like, untuck, like, I don't ever want to untuck this. This feels amazing. I want to do this every day. And I was like, oh, okay. I think there's something more here. And I just kept going into that. And again, yeah, 2020 in June. So this is like peak pandemic. We have George Floyd protests. There's like protests all over the world. I finally um, come out to the world as a trans woman. Although I had come out to my family earlier in uh, September, 2019. And my gender continues to evolve as I'm now nearing two years on HRT. My body's changing and just like, just how I think of myself keeps changing. I'm really just beginning life for the first time. What it really feels like I'm like two years old, not even, and yet I'm also 35. And I guess as a perfect segue, I think into our next question, the next evolution in my experience of gender, is to, as a 35-year-old woman, also decide to have and celebrate being a bat mitzvah. Yeah. There are so many threads to pull from all of that life story you just shared with us. I think the the audience is starting to catch on why you're so cool and why I wanted to have you on the show. So you, you mentioned at one point wanting to do rites of passage for boys. And I'm wondering how that earlier desire in your life relates to or doesn't or translates into you just had a bat mitzvah as a trans femme. And so for the folks who are less familiar with Jewish rites of passage, would you be willing to explain, one, what is a bat mitzvah? And two, what it was like doing that as a... as a Yeah, so a bat mitzvah is a, a stage in a Jewish person's life. It happens automatically when the youth turns uh, 12 or 13, depending on some other factors that I'm not exactly clear on, but I know that there's a, a little bit of a fuzziness there. And it basically marks the transition of a Jewish youth into a Jewish adult. It signifies that the parents are no longer spiritually responsible for their children. And I think a lot of it, there's a lot of diversity in, in, in the way that people practice Judaism. And I don't, I think some people, it's not necessarily that, the, that these 12 year olds are now like fully fledged adults and they're making adult decisions, but it's a beginning of that training and initiation into adulthood. Although perhaps in like biblical times, it may have been, or actually I'm not really sure what things were like biblical times, but it could have been a long time ago perhaps even the middle ages that 12 year olds were actually making like adult decisions. I think, you know, our society has changed a lot since then, but it happens no matter what. You don't have to have any kind of celebration. You don't have to have a, any kind of service or ceremony. It just happens. It's like when we turn people, us in civil society, when we turn 18, 
like we become an adult and it's just uh, something that happens and we can celebrate it or we cannot. But a bat mitzvah also includes often by the time that a, or a bar mitzvah, if you're a boy or a b'nai mitzvah, if you're going to use a gender plural word for, for b'nai mitzvah, often also comes with not only is it a marking of time, but it also tends to acknowledge that usually in preparation for this, you have accumulated enough knowledge and um, enough knowledge about Judaism to lead very important ceremonies, such as like a Shabbat service. You're able to read Torah, which means that you can read not only Hebrew, the actual how to incantate it, how to sing. It's an oral tradition. And so there's very particular ways that the words are sung. And so these are these have become markers of, of, of modern B'nai mitzvahs that, that happen. But of course, again, it happens no matter what. Jewish youth become Jewish adults and they automatically become B'nai Mitzvah at some point in their life. So rad. So, uh, I think I forgot the second question, but that was, it's um, okay. that is what a B'nai Mitzvah is in general. I love that a B'nai Mitzvah exists at all. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Then I wonder if non-binary people have B'nai Mitzvahs on purpose instead of bar or bat mitzvahs. <laughs> I believe so. That's I don't so cool. know if I know any non-binary Jewish people who have done this in particular, but I believe this happened on that really, I don't watch Sex in the City, but I think on the the, the reboot, there was a, a gender neutral B'nai Mitzvah. Oh my gosh. Maybe someone in the audience knows about that, but I, I don't watch that show, so. That's cool. Maybe yeah. we'll check it out sometime. But you just had your bat mitzvah like two weeks ago or something. I, time yeah. is slipping through my hands. I don't know how recent, but very recently. What um, was that like? Can you tell us like what the ceremony was like or who came or how you celebrated, yeah, especially in the time where there's still some pandemic stuff going on too? Like it's a very, it's a very timely event. Yeah, so I'm really firstly very extremely fortunate to an organization called Base Ithaca, which is a quasi-campus-affiliated Jewish organization that happens to have, at least our chapter happens to have a really awesome queer rabbi, and she just, her and her partner made a very safe and welcoming place for other queer Jewish people in Ithaca. I think otherwise we might not have really a place to go. And so it was through her and her her organization uh, and also in collaboration with Cornell Hillel. And Hillel is like a, is an organization that many college campuses have. I mean, perhaps people have heard of that, but it's basically Center for Jewish Life that has a very particular tradition and orientation to the religion. But this was a really quick and dirty one, if I could, if I could say so. And it was about six weeks of training on, on top of also like literally in the last semester of my dissert, finishing my dissertation, I admittedly did not learn how to read Hebrew and I cannot read Torah still. So these are things that like, I am a quote unquote bad Jew, but I'm also <laughs> still a good Jew. It's okay. And there's like really no rules about it, which is really beautiful. But we did certain things like understand what uh, a B'nai Mitzvah is. And we learned about what we would need to know, what we would need to do. And I was also offered an opportunity to deliver uh, something called a drosh, which is like a, a sermon basically giving my uh, interpretation of a Torah portion. So what's really interesting about going to synagogue and, and part of the, the bat mitzvah service is that every week, every con- every Jewish congregation in the entire world reads the same Torah portion and they move through the Torah all together throughout. And it takes, I think, some number of years. I can't remember the exact number of years to get through it all. And so I was offered to to offer a drash, a, a, an interpretation of this Torah portion that 
so that was a really that was a really cool piece that I got to hold in. And we had this on the Cornell campus has an interfaith building. It was just in a regular, it was in a very beautiful auditorium. I was very lucky. And I was also doing this in tandem with a couple other people. So it was very pluralistic. We also, we had another trans person getting their mitzvah, uh, becoming a bar mitzvah. And we had another person becoming a bat mitzvah. And we had friends and family. We had people zooming in. The service lasted about two hours and it was so beautiful with music and dancing. I think some of my friends are in the Twitch. Maybe they can throw in some comments about what they thought of it. And yes. And then afterwards there was a huge, what we call a kiddush, which is just like lots of food, bagels, locks, all kinds of schmears and spreads. And then later on, there was a very amazing classic like dance party, like it's very typical of, of contemporary bar and bat mitzvahs with a DJ and a dance floor and like all kinds of more food, a photo booth, someone like doing caricatures. It was just very, really brought me back to 2002. It was wonderful. That's so awesome. AC in the chat is asking or saying it was a really beautiful sermon. I hope Sammy will recount a bit of it today, perhaps. Thanks. Are there any pieces of the sermon you'd like to share with us now? Ooh, sure. Yes. Yeah, there's one particular passage that I think I'm not sure how well it reads out of context with the rest, but we'll try. And I guess uh, for a greater context, I'll say that um, the portion that we were reading about was all about kashrut, which is kosher law. And I thought, found that to be really fascinating because growing up, uh, I grew up Jewish, but what we call secular Jewish Judaism, and that my, my mom never asked me to go to Sunday school or never asked me to learn Hebrew, or we just basically celebrated the holidays for the sake of family. So I really grew up without any religious imposition, really just being Jewish as a, a part of my heritage, part of my culture. And I always really thought that keeping kosher was like really oppressive and annoying. And I was never so always grateful to never be that person. And like, here I am having to now create some kind of like very thoughtful words on, on, on kosher law. And if anyone has ever read this portion of the Bible, Leviticus 30, it is, it's really intense. There's all kinds of language about what is abominable and what is pure and what is clean and what is like the worst. And all things that all these really intense rules about basically how to like what is today's interpreted is like how to be a real or a good Jew to keep kosher. But I had a really different read on it, especially being queer and having a reflection of being queer, because ultimately keeping kosher is about, I think, when we look at it from a historical perspective, it's about creating in-groups and about protecting, protecting marginalized people from a more hostile society. And so really what like what keeping kosher allows Jewish people to do is to make sure that they're only eating food prepared by Jewish people, that they're only eating with other Jewish people, that they're only eating certain foods that are apparently sanctified by God to um, and only drinking wine that was made by Jewish people. So they're not getting that pagan. We're thinking back to the, and I have no problem with pagans, but I'm just talking about biblically speaking. Pagans <laughs> are awesome. I'm totally like, yeah. That's um, great because you're talking to one. Hey. Yes. <laughs> and so anyway, it's it's really, it's I think it's really a social technology for self-preservation and protection in an otherwise hostile environment. And so the same, and queer people do the same thing. We have our own codes for how to signal to each other, the kinds of places we want to be in, all different ways for us to make sure that we're protecting ourselves and being amongst our people for safety and for camaraderie and for culture. So... The part that I would like to read, yeah, we'll see how it goes out of, yeah, we'll see how it goes out of, out of context, but okay. 
So part of where this board I'm going to be picking up is where we're talking about in this Josh, where the kosher law sets apart what is holy and unholy, all these binaries. It basically creates a whole list of binaries. And so I'm going to start there. So the very nature of that separation and the binaries it creates, Jewish, not Jewish, kosher, not kosher, clean, unclean, holy, profane, is embedded in the very word kadosh, which commonly means holy, but it's actually a verb simply meaning to separate or to set apart. It is only when you kadosh something for God or technically mekadesh, does it become holy. It is only when, and so sorry, holiness implies then this singular purity, but which further complicates this separation we have just done. In this separating for the sake of purity, we come to the inconvenient truth that the entire idea of spiritual kadosh necessarily requires its opposite, the profane. Light can only shine into darkness, and darkness can only conceal what is illuminated. Purity only exists in comparison to or in light of the abominable. And kadosh goes hand in hand with the Hebrew word taher, a verb for the act of purifying and cleansing. Often in the context of cleansing gold, it means to make luster with the shining light of purity. The root tahor, its root tahor, means reducing impurities in a way that produces luster or glitter. And at this point in the sermon, I, I, I gave out bottles of glitter. That's awesome. Yes. Was it biodegradable glitter? It was exactly. We, we yes. love talking about how the the like confetti emotes that we use on stream is biodegradable glitter, glitter degradable pride confetti. <laughs> I love that. So we have a little bit of a conclusion here to finish this off. Please do. So before the great biblical flood, God ordered that all humans not take any life, perhaps decreeing a universal state of vegetarianism. But despite the rural, the rigid moral binaries that were imposed the fall of man ensued anyway. God then uses the flood as a way to rebuild a more perfect world. However, it's not that God changes the world to be perfect, but God changes God's own heart to perfectly love and accept the rebellious and wayward nature of humans. In this new world, God declares, therefore I will never destroy them. And to commemorate this new world, God, God turns his cachet or war bow upside down, pointed away from the earth. And this is what we call a rainbow. A rainbow is a vision of God and a reminder of accepting of humanity's full spectrum of existence. It is only in this post-flood world that God stipulates which and how meats can be consumed. In this world of radical acceptance is the same world that our rigid kashrut laws become relevant. The rainbow is a beautiful symbol, not only in Judaism, but also in society more broadly as the banner of equity and justice for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, two-spirit, queer, questioning, intersex, allied, asexual, pansexual, and other peoples between and beyond these identities. As I said earlier in this drush, uh, when I came out as trans, I also came out as Jewish. Both were important and latent parts of who I am. 
And since then, I have been kadoshing and toharing my gender and spirituality, scrubbing them clean of society's imposed imperfections until I shine with the holiness and perfection of God's radical love for humanity's full spectrum, which is represented for us every time there is a rainbow. Am I abominable? Am I holy? Remembering kadosh, I am both, and so are you. And remembering to whore, we need to glitz, sparkle, and shine. I love that so much. I feel like I'm about to cry. I love that people get to be sacred and profane. People in the chat are saying, I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> yeah, <Aww>. totally. <laughs> I think it's so powerful when any LGBTQ person reclaims a religion, especially a religion of the book, because religions of the book have so often been used to perpetuate violence against people like us. It's a powerful practice. I actually have two degrees in religion. Oh, I don't talk yeah. about it a ton on stream, but it's not because I don't want to. I just don't know how interesting it is to people. Anyway, I just, I love that. I like having like chills and like the brain is putting the nice chemicals in my body from your talk that you just did. So that's cool. I imagine your bat mitzvah was received. I've only heard positive things about it. Yeah, I've only heard positive things about it too, but perhaps there's people out there who thought it was something else, but we don't need to um, worry about the haters. It was really <laughs> wonderful. It was so special. And yeah, even for the people on Zoom had a great time. I think the warmth of my rabbi was like really infectious in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. And it was just like people threw candy at us. It was just fun. We were dancing. Like, this one thing I love about Judaism is how much like, how much singing and dancing there is, and how much is a part of celebrating and, and worshiping. Mm-hmm. That's what I love about paganism. There's way more singing yeah. and dancing than I ever did in the Christian spaces yeah. I was in. Yeah. Oh my gosh, so fun. Okay, so the next two questions I have are still on the topic of trans Judaism. Where are there spaces for queer liberation in Judaism? Is there more you wanna say on that topic? Sure, yeah. And I'm still learning so much. I'm definitely new to the scene, I'd say, as as someone who I think like really my bat mitzvah is me, like I said, in my trash coming out as a as a a Jewish person, even though I've been one all along, but really claiming it. So I'm really learning a lot. I'm still very much a learner. But there are amazing networks of queer and radical synagogues across the country probably across the world. I'd say I've also been learning so much about the intersection of trans-Judaism and liberation for Palestine, which is an absolutely important intersection that needs so much more attention. And I think that, as I think one of the best places that queer people can contribute to in Judaism is towards ending apartheid, ending the oppression, um, of other marginalized people and really fighting against colonialism. Israel is a colonial state and gender is a colonial construct. And so we have to work together to destroy those. We need to burn that down. I love it. All the trans people should be anti-Zionist. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I am. <laughs> yes. 100%. I love that. <laughs> All right. My final question on this topic, and if anyone in the chat has more questions about specifically the trans-Judaism piece. There's so many other pieces to talk about. Please feel free to put your questions in the chat and uh, Trans Griffin will hand it to me. So my next question is why Judaism and what's next for you on your Jewish journey? 
Good questions. Why Judaism? Judaism is part of my family. And I guess I can't, I grew up in a mixed religious family. My mom's side's Jewish. My dad's side's Catholic. And it could just be that I got more exposure to my Jewish side. I don't know. I also have a sister and like my sister and I are really different. And she, she has no problem with her Judaism, but she's not, it's not something she has really claimed as a major part of her identity. And I don't know, I'm, I'm a weird one in my family and I have decided to get really spiritual as well as really radical. I think I'm unique in that way across everyone in my family. But I guess Judaism, I thought, really for me, especially as a queer person, has a lot of overlaps in terms of surviving oppression. And that felt really relevant. I found a deep well of power in, in multiple iterations of these stories, especially of the Jewish diaspora across the world, of survivance, of, of community care. So many things I, just, I see reflected in how the way that queer people also have survived and thrived and and still made it to this very day. I have to, you know, pay recognition to my family who have perished in the Holocaust and also my family who escaped Poland and were able to establish financial security here in, in Brooklyn, not here, but in the U.S. and in Brooklyn and able to actually use financial resources to bring people out of dangerous places. And I think these are really powerful and inspiring stories for me especially as a queer person who's really interested in, in mutual aid, who sees T for T as mutual aid, who believes in queer community and queer family. There's just so many powerful stories of liberation and survival that I just, I couldn't ignore. Also, I didn't have queer friends who were Catholic. I'd had queer friends who were Jewish and they kept inviting me to Shabbat and they kept showing me fun songs. And I don't know, I know that Judaism is like very monotheistic, but it has, there's a lot of ritual and mysticism in it and magic. And I really, I love all that. I, I think that part is really exciting. I, I just like Jewish culture, I like Jewish humor. I like Jewish icons, celebrities. I just, I feel a connection that I can't deny. And I, I don't really know why it is. I'm just Jewish. <laughs> and yeah, so that's, so then as far as what's next, I think also part of it is that there is a huge, and maybe it's huge to me, but the huge intersection between queer Jews who are also interested in, in abolition and anti-Zionism and radical politics. And that is also who I am, always been, a leftist, an anarchist. And so to find a, a, a spiritual community that also takes cues from, from protests and from direct action and from rebellion, that's what I want. Like that's, those are my people. And so what is next? I don't exactly know what's next for me really personally is to finish my dissertation. And I think maybe after that, I would like to, I think I, I am interested in and maybe one day learning Hebrew, probably more so learning to speak Yiddish, which is more of my family's mother tongue. And just kids continuing to keep on the, my traditions, continuing to queer them up, continuing to find more queer Jewish communities. Um, I love having Shabbat dinner at my house with my queer family. That's something I wanna definitely keep doing. And yeah, so I don't totally know yet. I have a lot of other things on my plate. But just to keep doing what I'm doing and maybe look for what's next. Awesome. 
We have some more questions from the chat because people think oh, you're really okay. cool. Juliet Maddie asks, are there any Jewish holidays that feel especially gendery for you? Oh, yeah. The, probably the most gendery fun one would, would be Purim. P-U-R-I-M, um, which is like many Jewish holidays, a celebration of like very coarsely of us evading genocide and celebrating that. But really what it's about is about, it's also about coming out. The longer story, and I'll try to keep it brief, is it takes place in ancient Persia. The king needs a new queen because the queen decided to be defiant. And so the king was like, goodbye, I will not have a defiant wife. He holds a beauty pageant in, in the local town and a Jewish woman wins, but she has to keep her Jewish identity secret because being Jewish is not a good luck back then and still today sometimes. So it's a lot about concealment and about being closeted. And she's really lucky that her uncle also makes it into the royal courts. And, and anyway, things transpire, it gets complicated. The king's right-hand person decides that has a real big um, problem with Jewish people and wants to kill them all. And so then finally, Esther, this is uh, where the name Esther becomes very popular. She's like, wait, King, like you can't kill these Jewish people. Like I'm Jewish, you're killing like my people. You can't do that. And the King's like, whoa, wait, you're Jewish? No, okay, we can't, okay. So it's about like powerful women coming out and turning and like manipulating patriarchy to, to not wage genocide. And then on this holiday, in celebration of, of coming out and of the power of women, we're encouraged to cross-dress and to just do it up and get wild. And it's like, it's, it's a drinking holiday, which is ordained by God. And, and yeah, it's very gender bendy. So I like that. That's so awesome. They tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat, says Juliet and Maddie in the chat. <laughs> yeah, that's the cliff notes of many Jewish holidays. <laughs> All right. So my next curiosity to pivot a little bit is your queer drag that you do. Can you tell us something about your activities and experiences as a drag queen? Yes, definitely. I, I perform as Ginger Vicious. And Ginger Vicious is a, to me, she is like the um, hyperbole and the epitome of my punk ass teenage self. She rages against the patriarchy in high heels and wet leather. All of her performances are are political in some way and very, usually pretty Jewish, if not like, not only in iconography, like the symbolisms that I wear, also in terms of the song I choose or some, like during pandemic, I did a lot of virtual shows and for the virtual shows, I would throw in lots of like video montage before the show to build context of not only not only Judaism but also queer liberation. I was really lucky to have gotten started in drag through Cornell, through through a student at Cornell in particular who was involved with the LGBT Resource Center who put together a a drag class, basically a workshop series. And excuse me. And yeah, so that was a really that was really cool for me that I could because it was at the exact same time that I was starting to come out and become very genderqueer. And I was really grateful to have been able to have a safe place in the university to also experience this with some of my friends. And even the workshop series led up to a drag show. So they taught you everything you needed from makeup to developing a stage persona to actually auditioning. 
And then they had a performance and the performance was on campus too. So I was like, it was really cool. It's very convenient for me. It was a really great way to break in. I got really excited and interested in it. And there was a lot of drag performers in Ithaca. And so I got introduced to a whole new community of people. And I also dovetailed because all my queer friends loved going to drag shows. So it's just a great way for everyone to, to get along or to get together and to celebrate. And I don't know, I am someone who really feels personally very strongly that if I'm going to be doing some kind of performance art, I want to make a statement. I guess I'm just a loud bitch and um, <laughs> someone who likes to cause a scene, make a fuss, do good trouble, be a bad influence, all those kinds of things. And those are all like what really is imbued in, in the spirit of Ginger Vicious. Her name comes from one, my ginger hair, but also Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols. And so it's just like really embodying punk rock aesthetics, which is also not something that that was something I didn't really see in, in the drag scene here in Ithaca. There, there weren't really any punk rock queens. There definitely weren't any Jewish queens. And there were very few trans queens. And so those are all things that I decided that I want to make really front and center in my performances. So, yeah, I find ways to incorporate like Stars of David. And also I identify as like a pansexual lesbian. And so... Ginger Vicious also is very lesbian, loves like harming men. In some one of my videos, I kidnap Donald Trump and I peg him, <laughs> torture him and peg him and kill him with a dildo. That was one of my highlights <laughs> of all time. And I got the honor of performing in Pride in person last year, 2021. And that was really powerful for me because that was right on the tail end of the first really horrific wave of anti-trans bills that that we were seeing really take this nation. And I know that this had started since 2016 but with bathroom bills like in North Carolina, but 2021 was the first time that we were seeing multiple states come out, especially with the, the sports bans and, and then also the healthcare bans. And I had been doing a lot of, of organizing and activism locally and larger than locally as much as I can with my online, my tiny online presence. And so I was just like so enraged with what was going on, so fired up that I was really grateful to be able to use my in-person performance to to make that a statement piece and burn, burning Amer an American flag, which felt like very appropriate and, and cathartic. So those are the kinds of things that, that Ginger likes to do. Ginger really likes to push the boundaries, be vicious. She's vicious about not only her looks, but she's vicious about her people. She mm -hmm. will protect them like the stray alley cat that she is. It's interesting to me that you're talking about Ginger Vicious in the third person, since it is a persona that you put on. Is that right? Is that pretty common in the drag scene to talk about your drag sona as a, as a separate entity from oneself? Yes. I think definitely often it's it's an entire it's a character it's a, it's an embellishment of who I am and who who I were who I would be if I were like a, a superhero or an anti-hero I think Ginger is definitely an anti-hero yeah it's not Ginger is not who I am and my Ginger and I definitely share a lot of of interests and we share a lot of passions mm -hmm. but I definitely do distinguish our identities in the in the, in IRL yeah yeah that's so fun oh my gosh I'm, I'll let the, the chat know if they want to ask questions about more ginger vicious queer drag shenaniganery, they can. I think there is 
general interest in seeing some of these videos that you've created? Because it's not just you on a stage in an outfit. It's like highly edited videos that you took a lot of time putting together. And I will remind the audience, either listening now or, or later, that there is a practice within the drag scene of tipping your performers. So if you do take time to watch the video, please consider offering some scratch, if you will, to the folks. Eyebrow waggles. Yeah, it's good. It's, it's an important piece that has been impressed upon me, the importance of tipping performers. I'm basically a performer as well, right? That's literally what I'm doing right now. So yeah. tip performers, folks, it's so really we can keep expensive. doing the thing. It is, all the outfits, all the, not Make to mention editing outfit. software on top of it all now too. Like yes. time is money. It's all of those things. It's all true. Cool. Okay, so apparently you're also a musician. I am, yes. Oh my gosh, tell us more about that. Sure, I've been playing guitar since I was like, eight years old in fourth grade, I think is when I got my first guitar. And I have been in like punk and alt rock bands most of my life. In 2001, it's like right after 9-11, I remember I picked up the bass because we wanted a new band and they needed a bass player. So I like, I'll play bass. And I, so I primarily play guitar and bass. I also dabble in the ukulele and I'm not bad on a hand drum, but I cannot play a drum kit at all. <laughs> and I try to sing, but I'm pretty bad. And I, yeah, I like to play music. I've been, my friend Ace and I, we like to play music together. Who's on, on the, the Twitch right now, trying to start a, a poke, uh, not poke, <laughs> a folk punk acoustic duo. Who knows? Nice. We'll see what happens. Life has us very busy, but yeah, I like to write music. Often I write songs and historically I write songs often to, to cope with really challenging life experiences, mostly breakups, but recently right, starting to write other stuff. And I love, I really want to keep, I want to write trans anthems and queer anthems. I've got one. Yeah. So I play music. Very amateur. We've got AC in the chat saying, uh, haha, I want folk and she wants punk. And then my response yeah. was folk punk combo, banjo yes. and electric guitar. Exactly. <laughs> Folks are also in awe that you have time for your special interests with all the other things you're already doing. Do you sleep? <laughs> I sleep like five hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's relatable. I thought I slept eight hours a night and I looked at my sleep app on my phone and it was like five, five, four, six, five. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, <laughs> so relatable. <laughs> yes, I, I have to. Like, also what I love about playing music is that since I'm doing like dissertation work, I'm, I'm either on Zoom or I'm like writing or analyzing data. And it's so nice to go from staring at screens to then go pick up an object, hold it, close my eyes and have an oral and like tactile experience. I, mm -hmm. If I have ADHD, it's a really good like mental resetting for me where I'm going from like my eyes only and my brain to something that's like really cathartic and something that's non-visual at all. Mm -hmm. So I also use it to take breaks throughout my day. That's wonderful. I just took my acoustic guitar, electric guitar, electric bass, and ukulele off the wall to pack this weekend. Also <laughs> a little hand drum. It's fun. I'm not great at any of those instruments, but I have them yeah. and sometimes yeah. sounds come out of them. <laughs> yes. We don't have to be great at our hobbies. They're our hobbies. They're like things for fun. 
I do not ever try to make music money from my music. It's mm-hmm. just really something I do because I love it. Yeah. It's so fun. What's it like coming out and transitioning after 30? Wow. It's great. It's about damn time. Um, late bloomer life is it's better late than never. And I have never really understood the full power of that saying until I came out. It's also, let's see, it's hard. It's hard just because like our bodies are set, but are awesome. There's, there's just like some things that at least like in terms of like changes from HRT that I would like that are, are maybe not possible or slower. In the beginning, I was really crushed with feelings of like lost time. Mm-hmm. I don't really feel that way anymore. I think I've just gotten used to my life and I've gotten used to looking to the future, which is not something I was very skilled at before. I didn't really know what the future ever really held for me. I guess this content warning as a youth struggling with trans identity without having any language for it. I definitely struggle with like self-harm and those are things I feel so, so far away from at the moment. So that's really nice. One thing that's really great about transitioning later is that I just have a better sense of who I am and what I want. And I feel like now that I have like really gotten clear about my gender and being trans, I can like, I can just voraciously claim my queer family, my transness. It's like every day feels like a blessing. And so I've gone 30, 30, however many years living a lie. And now I'm finally telling the truth. And it feels just like a huge, this, that disjuncture of time just is immense. And has ultimately been like really inspiring for me. It can be really dysphoric being trans on a college campus because surrounded by 19 year old cis women. It's just like, gosh, if only, but never, absolutely never. And also it's, it's nice to, it's nice to be visibly trans. It's nice to not look cis sometimes. And that's something I struggle with is my own internalized transphobia, but that's just like what we're up against and what we're trained in, unfortunately. I came out in the middle of my dissertation, in the middle of my PhD. And I said before I did this in the middle of the, in the very beginning of the pandemic, although I did come out to my family later and it was really hard for my family at first and some of them still, but because they had known me for so long. And so like when you come out late, I think it really throws certain people for a loop people who have a lot of expectations of you or yeah, just expectations. Expectations are the worst. Everyone should do everything you can to dismantle your expectations. It was, and then as a parent, that's been a whole nother thing. And that's something that's still in the muck with and the depths of, it's been really complicated, mostly with, I don't want to call her my co-parent because the co is not really an active descriptor. It's just really, I guess she's my ex. And so that was challenging. That still is challenging. And yeah, when I guess what's hard about what's, what's unique about coming out late is that you just have, you build a life in a certain way and, and people have certain attachments to you and certain expectations of you. And for the first time, you're actually like, it feels weird to say this, but like sometimes you're disappointing people by being actually honest. And I think that's something that's really beautiful about being queer and about being trans is that when we do come out, we're finally being honest with people. And I feel like I'm able to handle that honesty so much better as an older person. I've just, I just have, I've been through, and also just my own personal life history. Like I've been through a lot of shit. I've been through hard times, especially in terms of relationships and 
And I've just gained so much from all the struggle. And so I think things worked out the way that they should have. I don't think if I think if I had to choose between coming out really early and still being a parent, I think I would still choose to be a parent. I love my daughter. I want her to live. I always want her to be alive. And I always want to be her parent. I want, I, I look forward to the day when we can have a genuine relationship. That's not possible at the moment. So yeah, coming out late has all those things. It has both like the joys of being, of knowing a little bit more about yourself and having a little bit more self-confidence depending on who you are, what your life looks like. And also you're sort of entrapped in the expectations you've set up for other people and the way that your life is entrenched. So folks are really curious about your PhD process. We have some fellow trans folks who are either one, super nerdy about grammar, two, super nerdy about creating languages and linguistics and three, just generally love studying things. And so there's curiosity around what's it like transitioning in the middle of a PhD and what's your dissertation on? And I can ask that again in a minute, if that's too many questions. (laughs) I'll start with the first one. What's it like to transition in the middle of a PhD? It was pretty, at first, really terrifying. I think just coming out as a trans person, especially as someone like who's in their mid 30 or like early 30s and really just like scared about passing or not passing and college campuses are so like there's just like there's people just like all the time looking at you and also as a grad student like I'm teaching like I have roles to I have a professional persona to uphold I have colleagues that I still want to take me like seriously and I just was like especially I think being in the pandemic helped a lot because things were virtual and we could turn off our cameras or we could put on filters or we could, there's a lot of like mediation of the way that people saw us, which was really helpful. Something I did was I decided to just be unapologetic about myself. I never announced to my department that I was like transitioning. I never made any really formal announcements to pe- only to my advisor and to my committee, just to let them know that this was happening, That. I have a new name, new pronouns. Like they were people who I really wanted to make sure were on board. I wanted them to be able to help in case I got any challenges from other people in the department or admin that they could back me up. I needed people in my corner. Really grateful to have amazing committee members. Yeah, make sure that if you're someone who is in graduate studies, like you should trust, hopefully you trust your advisors. And if you don't find different ones, cause it's not worth feeling vulnerable and threatened mm-hmm. by people um, who have such power over your success. And yeah, the first couple of years, I shouldn't say couple of years, cause it's only hasn't even been two years yet, but it feels like a long time. Pandemic um, makes everything feel like dog years. It's yes. like, it's been 14 years since we've left our house. Yeah. <laughs> and I went through a really interesting phase, especially as someone who was teaching, first coming out as non-binary and doing a lot of just play with my clothing. And that was cool for a while. Just like taking things real slow. I, I was the kind of person who, I started HRT before doing things like electrolysis or growing my hair out or, and so it was all happening at the same time and I just let it build. And so I started off as a non-binary person and then eventually, after enough, after like things, after I was able to like get a handle on on my hair and my presentation, just different aspects of my presentation, I just went full, I went to my mixed pronouns, which I still keep, really love my mixed pronouns. And, but definitely identify as a trans woman. Another 
and and uh, always hoping that I'll have like other queer students or trans students. And so far I've had one who has come out later, which has been really sweet. And we've actually been able to connect as community instead of just as uh, like teacher student capacity. Mm-hmm. But also I do a lot of work with community. So my work sometimes kind of segues into the next question, which is uh, I'm an agricultural scientist and I work with farmers and I also work with indigenous peoples. My work is really interested in developing agricultural systems that contribute to both climate smart agriculture and indigenous food sovereignty. I see them as important, like necessary and important twin components of a sustainable future where sustainability has to attend to social justice as well as just as ecological sustainability. And so I work with, I work with farmers who are, you know, generally more conservative, older, white, cis men. And it was really, it's been it, it has been really like edgy for me coming out professionally in that world. I'm lucky to have other professional networks that are that like I've been able to join as a trans person, as opposed to someone who was not tra- like someone who has transitioned. And so some of these farmers have seen me transition. And honestly, I'm really grateful that I guess I get to work with cool farmers, farmers who care about justice and farmers who care about really radical visions of food production and sustainability that no one has given me. I, I, yeah, I was very surprised that no one has really given me a hard time or, and who knows what they say about me behind closed doors. I think also in the beginning when I was not very passing, I think it was much harder for folks. So it's just, yeah, working with community is just an additional layer of of like anxiety that has been, but I've been really pleasantly surprised and really grateful for that. One of the comments in chat is noted for a good PhD time, make friends with cool farmers. (laughs) Farmers are getting cooler and cooler. So yeah, you definitely should. Everyone eats. Like it's a vital thing that will never go away. So way to way to work on making it more sustainable. I run in in plenty of pagan circles that are focused on not only sustainable food stuff, but I love that you're also using this anti-colonial perspective, which is also about sustainability, but also reparations. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, That's the so Intergovernmental good. Panel on Climate Change just came out with their most recent report today, and they oh, cite wow. colonialism as a cause of climate change. So it's now becoming mainstream at the top scientists in the world that colonialism is a curse. Yeah, so that's good. The, the queer people already knew that. Yes, we, and, we did. And the BIPOC and people already knew that. But yeah. I'm glad there's official white people saying, for real, it's a curse. <laughs> wow, how timely that this interview is today, then, that that just came out. That's so, oh, yeah. that's so cool. Is there What else do you want to say about anti-colonial agroforestry? Agro, I don't know if anyone even heard of the word agroforestry, but it is, it's a newfangled term for a very ancient and globally spread practice, which is basically integrating trees and shrubs into people's livelihoods. This can happen through many different forms. I'm not going to go into all of them, but this is something that not only currently exists throughout the world amongst many people, but we have a really amazing evidence showing how ecosystems that we thought were pristine wilderness, let's say the Amazon forest, this like giant expanse of a forest is actually like a giant forest garden that has been at least many parts of it. We can actually see signatures of past human interaction, past human relationships 
that are like thousands and thousands of years old. And yeah, scientists and agriculturalists are really interested in agroforestry because it can make food and can make medicine and can make fiber and building material. It has like so many multiple functions while also sequestering carbon because trees are like this amazing um, technology that take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and invest it into long lasting durable wood. And they do it completely for free. You don't have to build machines and they have existed for millions of years. You and mean so, yeah. we already have the solution? We just have to remember how to be good people. That's the yeah. hardest part. Yeah. It's interesting to me that you are embracing your Jewish lineage, which I feel like there's a lot of awareness of ancestry and folks that have come before within Judaism. And the pieces you're talking about with agroforestry is also remembering ancient technologies that definitely work. My wife is a software engineer and she talks about whenever she's trying to design a system, because she's an engineer at heart, she wants to design it as simply as possible. What is the simplest way we can solve this problem? And so I love the simplest way to solve climate change is like plant trees that belong where they are planted. <laughs> part of it, I, we must, I must say that we need to divest from fossil fuels. We have to stop. Like that is the major cause, right? Like we need to stop, keep it in the, keep the oil in the soil, keep the coal in the ground, keep it in the ground, keep it in the ground, idle no more. And also, yeah, we need to re renegotiate, redevelop, rekindle our relationship with land. And trees are a huge part of that. Yeah. Okay. I have four more questions that are all different topics and then are a couple of wrap-up questions. So this is another reminder for the chat. If you have any more AMA questions to throw in, go ahead and do so now. So I'm a trans step-parent and my wife is a trans parent. She is a dad, she, her. And mm -hmm. I'd love to hear more about your experience with being uh, transparently a transparent. Yeah, I love that. I love that pun. Yeah, because I touched about on it a little bit before, and it's been challenging just because of transphobia that is running rampant in a certain sect or a certain part of my family, unfortunately. But I believe that with love, we can overcome these things and with time. But yeah, I am. I'm a girl dad, both the dad of a girl and also a dad who is a girl. And I, yeah, I use the word dad mostly because I don't know of a better word for myself right now. And that is that's how my daughter knows me and i don't i don't need to i don't right we're still negotiating things and mm -hmm. if that's the word that works for her that's important to me it's important that she feels um comfortable and see, i'm not going to and like the word dad is not an or mom or whatever like those i don't know i don't really feel a lot of attachment to those words that much i really just want a relationship with with my daughter that would be Start. Let's start there. That would be beautiful. So she has seen me in parts of my transition, and she has seen me. She has seen me pass. She has seen me. People in a mall refer to me as her mom. She has seen me feel great around my friends and swimming. And I think it's really complicated for her. It's really complicated for me. I want to be. I want to be. I want to show her what trans joy looks like. What queer joy looks. Like. I want to show her what honesty looks like and what it means to be uh, unapologetically you. I think that those are such great lessons for youth to learn. And unfortunately, that's not. I'm not able to be that kind of inspiration to her at the moment. And yeah, so. 
I guess being transparently a parent is also yeah, being right now, I'm being really transparent about the lack of parenting that I'm, I'm able to do because my ex has decided to cut me off from communication and has convinced my daughter not to talk to me. So I'm just waiting, waiting until she goes to college or she gets to have, she's 25 or something. And it's like seen a little bit more of the world has gone out of her mom's house and doesn't have someone breathing down her neck about main upholding their, you know, transphobia. And yeah, my being a parent has been the part of my life where I have faced the most trans misogyny and the most trans transphobia, which I didn't really expect at first. I really thought it would be coming from the professional world mm -hmm. and even just like in my social world, it's like being out and about, but it's actually been in like the most hard hitting area. It's just, it's really hard to have a love connection be forcibly removed. I, it's not something I want. And yeah, so I'm lucky to, I'm lucky to have counseling and to have like lots of other great things happening in my life. Um, really grateful for my community who's able to hold me in the hard times. And really it's just like hope for the future. That's a lot about being trans is hope for the future in the face of intense, intense shittiness, whether it's legal, political or familial. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's like for me being a transparent. And I guess I would also say I have this intense desire to adopt trans kids. Maybe once I have a career and I have an actual income and like I'm building a retirement. I don't know. I really do want to be a mama. Uh, I feel like a mama to my community and I, but I want to give that to youth. I think the queer youth of today is so inspiring and so beautiful. And if there are any of them out there that are like kicked out, like I would love to make a home for them. I invite everyone who's listening to take a deep breath and take in that piece of your story. Samantha, thank you so much for sharing this piece so honestly. Yeah, I've never really talked about it so publicly before. So thanks to you all for being totally. Parenting is hard. <laughs> Just full stop. That's the whole sentence there. And I've heard, I've read in in books, I don't know if you've heard of Kate Bornstein. Kate Bornstein is a, a non-binary trans fan. I would say boomer. I think Kate's in that mm -hmm. age bracket. Oh, yeah. But she wrote an entire book explaining her life and the intended audience was her daughter because she's been cut off from her daughter. And she talks about being in Scientology and what all of that was like. And at the end, there's this very touching chapter or epilogue or what have you to her child. And the intention is if the kid ever read the book or whatever, that the kid would find that that love letter. If you had anything you wanted to share for your kid, I'm totally happy to leave room for you to say it. Or if that feels too private or too intense, we don't have to do that at all. But I figured I would offer, since this will exist, after this conversation out in the world, if your kid ever stumbles upon it, if you have anything you wanted to say, then you could. Yeah, there's some things I can say, which I've also said to her, like I, I sent her texts like once every two weeks, just being like, hey, just saying hello, sending you love. And I think if she's listening to this at some point in the future, just know that I love you so much and I love you forever. And I'm always here for you whenever you need, whenever you're ready to talk, I'm all ears. You can tell me how mad at me you are. You can tell me how confused you are. I'll answer all of your questions. I want to hear your story. Very sweet. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. It's amazing how our love for our kids transcends everything. Yeah. 
It just doesn't end. <laughs> yeah. It's really different. It's a relationship you're going to have for decades. Yeah. Everyone yeah. in the chat is very much having all the love and feels. <laughs> you have lots of relentless support going on right now. There's something you touched on. You mentioned the word honesty, and I'm curious about, I think you said something like you don't feel like you're able to be honest right now. And is that about when people like would see the two of you in public and call you mom, but your kid's dad? And so then it's like this weird tension. Is that what you're referring to? I don't actually remember exactly what it is you're referring to, but what you just explained definitely is valid and like reflective of like, yeah, it was weird. Especially in that one particular instance, like we were in the mall together. I was taking my daughter like shopping for clothes for school. And just like the, the person in the store is just going on and on about like how much we look alike and like just mom, your mom this and all oh, your mom that. And both my daughter and I just had to like, we're just like keeping up. I was like, really, I, I never, I, it's probably my fault. I never checked in with her. I'd be like, okay, what do we do when this happens? What do you want to happen? Who should I be for you? We never really checked in about language and ex expectations in that way. And yeah, so there's this, this, it's such, it's so ambiguous. It's so vague. There's even vagary around like, Sometimes people, my the other people in my family will be like, oh, like your dad this. Or sometimes people will be like, oh, your parent this. And I know that my daughter in, in her phone, she has me as parent. Like whenever I text or call, like I come up as parent. Mm -hmm. So there's, and for me, that feels like really sterile. I mean, I know mm -hmm. that's like gender neutral and, and is correct. It's like technically correct, but if it feels almost like people are using it as a way to delegitimize my relationship with her. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm just taking it personally and that's actually not true. That's totally possible. I do take things personally in general, but yeah. So there is, a, it's hard to, I don't know if I, it's not about not being honest, but there is a vagary that we have to negotiate. And sometimes with strangers, we're maybe not honest and maybe also to ourselves. We're not honest. We're not honest about, maybe how we really feel or what we really want. I guess I'm thinking more specifically about, about her, my daughter, and her developing skill to be able to advocate for herself and to say, no, like, I'm not comfortable with this. Please don't do this. Or to say, this is fine. And to actually mean it. I don't actually know. Not only is parenting hard, but parenting teenagers so hard because they're not going to tell you what they really think. Maybe some of them will, but... Teenagers have an entire hidden world. I think even parents with the best relationship with their teens still only know a fraction of what's going on. And that's how it is. My parents don't know so much about what it was like for me as a teen, and they probably never will. It's it's interesting being on the other side of that, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, this is what my parents were going through. <laughs> oh, dear. I did have a opinion to share with you that is perhaps supportive or... Okay maybe we'll open your paradigm a little and you can take Thanks. it or leave it if you don't like it you don't have to take it in but i've been listening to this other podcast called uh stealth a transmasculine podcast it's about folks who came out before or during the year 2000 and so it's documenting transmasculine elders because so often transmasculine people are stealth and we don't talk about them we don't see them and i know for me there's a ton of transmasculine trans men and non-binary people on testosterone who are like where are the older people than us who have done the hrt on testosterone thing 
we can't find each other and it's hard. And so mm. that's like what the podcast is addressing is bringing more visibility and documenting those stories of what it was like to come out before the internet, before everything that millennials have come to know as what's around. And their first season talks a lot about disclosure. And one of their questions is they talk about the phrase stealth and people's feelings about it. And there's a lot of people that hate the word and prefer other things as the word. And they, they still haven't really landed on the best word to use. Maybe collectively we can all figure out something. But I'm curious about this concept of disclosure and how much disclosure do we owe people? Like in in that situation in the mall that you mentioned, like, I don't think you are being actively deceptive right? Someone made an assumption and you don't owe your entire gender history or medical history to random people in the mall. Like, I don't see cis women going around talking about their double mastectomy they had to have or like how they're having their menopause now and they're having all these hot flashes or men talking about how harder, how much harder it is to deal with sex now that they're older and their boners don't work. There's not this medical disclosure happening from cis people in public spaces like that. And personally, this is my opinion, take it or leave it. I don't think you were being dishonest or disingenuine in that moment. And I, I hear you that the, it was awkward for you and your kid at that moment to navigate that. But for what it's worth, from my perspective, I don't think you did anything wrong. I think it's yeah. really difficult to navigate and people have a lot of hecked up expectations of trans people. They're like, we need to know it's a bathroom. Right. We have opinions. And it's heck you. I didn't ask you when your last period was when you walked in the bathroom. Don't ask yeah. me if I can have one. Like, it's rude. Right. <laughs> yeah. And also, I thank you very much for saying that. I totally agree. I I think disclosure, I think like the onus is, is ridiculous and unfair. And also, in that particular situation, I don't know what another person's reaction especially some like rando at the mall, mm -hmm. but their reaction to be, if I do say like, oh, actually I'm her dad. And then they'll be like, who knows? I could have ended up putting my daughter and I in a much more dangerous situation yeah. than not. But yeah, yeah, maybe it was a little bit like awkward and uncomfortable on the inside, but I think ultimately I agree that, and thank you for affirming that, that it was a, the, the right choice to make in that moment. Yeah. My, my wife who, celebrated yesterday seven years on estrogen had to navigate this with her kids so now they're 13 and 16 so minus seven years that's how old they were when she first started coming out and mm -hmm. so they had to figure out what do we call you in public because in private in her house they call her dad she's dad she yeah. her and that totally mm -hmm. works and it's funny because the kids have two moms at the other house and then uh -huh. like her, my she her uh -huh. dad spouse and then me I'm Jack dad or Jad J-A-D <laughs> Oh, cool. It's like my first name and dad smushed together because, of course, yeah. I picked a three-letter non-binary name. So we've got yeah. the dad's house and the mom's house, so the kids are stuck in either the constant go-ask-your-mom loop or dad jokes forever. Yeah. I like to think our house is more fun, but that I'm very biased. <laughs> but the kids had to learn to call my spouse something else in public, so they just call her by her first name out in the world. If they were in the mall, they would have not, hey, dad, can we go to the movies? Hey, first name, can we go to the movies? Just because of security and safety. And my spouse is a, I don't know, advanced red belt in Taekwondo or something. Like she's also tall and very strong. Like she grew up on uh -huh. a farm, so she's not to be trifled with. She's a very strong girl. But still, there is that concern over safety and security out in the public with random people who don't know you. Yeah, it's complicated navigating names and kids and because the kids know you as dad, but then the world doesn't read you as dad. And how do you even deal with that? Thanks for taking some time to talk about this very complicated piece of being trans. I think it's a valuable thing to discuss. Yeah, I, it's really hard to find community around transparenting 
especially if with people who have who came out later and people who have teens and they're coming out lots of people who have come out and their kids are very young and it's such a different experience so it's really great i didn't know that you were parents it's really great to know that it definitely deepens my my affection for being invited here but yeah transparents we need there's actually i don't know if you know have you ever heard of the organization collage i haven't What's that? I don't, it's an acronym. I don't remember exactly what it stands for, but they just recently came out with a really fantastic resource, which is for people with trans parents. And it's written by people with trans parents. So yeah, so the organization is called Collage, C-O-L-A-G-E. And it's just a really wonderful resource guide that's very affirming to a wide range of different experiences gives a lot of like just affirmations as to like how this is going to be okay. And also lets the, like lets the, the intended audience have very complex emotions about the experience. And then also provides some really amazing, at the very, very end, some really cool links to scientific research articles about transparenting, about what it's like for the parents of who, who came out as trans and like what they're, ex- anyway. So it's just like a, for all the trans parents out there or for all the people with trans parents there, you're not alone. There's resources out there. There's communities out there. Please, please reach out to your kin, to your like your non-family kin as well. And uh, even though our stories aren't really, aren't like common or told, like we definitely have a wealth of knowledge and experiences to share with each other. Someone in the chat is clarifying that collage was originally children of lesbians and gays everywhere. So there's the description of that acronym. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for that. I love, I love it. And I made sure to put collage in the show notes. So um, if folks want to look at some of these resources later, I'll have the editors collect some of those links to share with everyone so you can go and do some more reading. That's one of the things that I love about this show is I'm constantly learning about new resources I've never heard of. Uh (laughs) And it just becomes this huge repository of like resources to go check out. It's so great. Okay, this next question is extremely very serious. I say very sarcastically. Why is skateboarding the very best? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so many reasons. One, because it's punk and anything punk is the best. <laughs> but what I love about skateboarding is that there are no rules. You just go and have fun and be creative. It's all about creativity. Your gender literally doesn't matter. And like you get to, by way of becoming more athletic and more embodied, you're like defacing property. So you're skating on banks and government buildings and some of these edifices that represent what is the most awful things on these planets. So you get to actually like cause the Karens of the world headaches <laughs> having fun. And you get to be this like little punk rockers. You don't have to listen to punk music, but you can skate anywhere. You don't need to have a fancy facility, although that's really nice, but you can literally skate on the street. It's just, it's anti-establishment. And that's what I love about it. And it's free form, it's creative. It's all about having just having a good time and doing things that people didn't think were possible. Mm -hmm. Just being trans is punk. (laughs) If you ever 
spend time in the Discord server, we have two new emotes. They're both the rock on hands, but one is the trans pride colors and the other is the non-binary pride colors. So we have trans and non-binary mm-hmm. rock on. Well, you, can post, a- you can post pictures of you skateboarding with your trans <laughs> rock on hand. <laughs> we will all react with more rock ons and tell you how oh. punk you are. <laughs> Any tips for adults looking to get into skateboarding? We've got people in the chat that are like, oh, I've always wanted to do that, but I'm scared to learn as a fully grown adult. Oh yeah, yeah. It can be. You can really hurt yourself for sure because the ground is hard. There's a lot of different things you can do. One, you can start with skateboarding inside your house. So you can take a skateboard, take off the wheels, and just put it on a carpet and just play around. Get used to balancing and get used to like trying to do some like little easy tricks. You could put it on a cylinder. Like I have, a, I basically made a makeshift balance board mm-hmm. with a foam roller and a skateboard with no wheels. Nice. And you can just stand on it and teeter back and forth. And that really helps to build core strength and just sense of balance. If you want to go out into the world and skate, there's also like new products coming out now where like you can buy on the internet a skateboard where instead of wheels, it has two huge cushions. So you nice. can like literally do all the skate tricks that you normally could and not damp- be in the safety of your home. You could do it on a rainy day and you can do it without destroying your house. So that's really cool. And wear pads. If you're gonna go out, ice skate with elbow pads, knee pads, wrist guards. Those are essentials for me because I find it gives me more confidence and I like to skate hard and I don't, like it's really sad for me if I'm like trying something that's hard. I always, when you push yourself is like when you're gonna fall. You're doing Mm -hmm. things outside your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And it's really sad for me that when I like go and try something new or try something that I'm working on, and then I fall and hurt myself and it's only been like 10 minutes into me skating and I had to like go home. That is the most depressing thing ever. Like I, mm. I want to have a good two hour skate session. Wearing pads helps me, helps, help, gives me longevity in, in my skate session. And go with friends, uh, go to the skate park like in the morning before mm. all the other like young punks get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be really intimidating. If you have a skate park, it can be intimidating because they're usually pretty small. And there's often like really good skaters and they're like, tough and not super friendly, but go with some peeps, go on an off time. The morning, like usually those people are like not up at 9 a.m. So if you are able to <laughs> go at 9 a.m., that's a great time to go. Also in the summertime, that's who wants to be in a like outdoor concrete park at 2 p.m. Yeah. You, like you're literally in an oven. Some skate parks have queer trans nights, which that's is rad. really nice because, uh, yeah, it is really rad. So Oftentimes, maybe they'll cut the admission fee. And then also there's like far fewer people there. And the people who are there are like actually kind because mm-hmm. they're also queer and trans. And we know about community. Other tips. Yeah, just start small. Follow people on Instagram. There's a lot of, I've, I, I love Instagram. I know not everyone, people have moved on from Instagram, but maybe also on TikTok and other social media platforms. There's always a skating community. So find the skating communities watch the videos, get inspired. Sometimes a lot of them will offer like really brief tutorials on how to do simple tricks. And you'll also get like mega inspired by people who are really good. So it's a double whammy. That's awesome. Yes. What's your favorite skateboarding trick? Asks Juliet and Matt. Okay. So one I really want to do that I am not able to do yet. It's called an impossible. It's not impossible but I'll try to explain it. It's when you make the, you and the board go up in the air and then the board spins around your back foot and then you land it. It's really cool. That's, That's one of my cool. goals I think, for 2022 is to at least start doing that trick. Have you ever thought about 
or maybe you already have, making a drag video on a skateboard, like the whole thing. I, really, I had an idea for that and I haven't done it yet. I would love to, yeah, I need to learn how to skate in heels. That would be- Yeah, you do. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> I would love that. That would be the epitome. That would be like Ginger's shining moment. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> Let Ginger out. <laughs> now, can Ginger wear a helmet with her hair? Does she have a big wig or like- Ginger in the past has had wigs. She's moving more towards- natural hair this is a really hard to contain under a wig i'm sure it's possible but i hate doing it so i'm actually starting to maybe experiment with getting some hair extensions to make my hair like really big and draggy but also i don't know if i'm able to share images but one thing i did that was really fun for pride in 2021 is that i spiked all of this hair into a mohawk which took me three hours to do and half a bottle of elmer's glue but it turned out amazing. I'll make a note to to get the link to your Mohawk pictures so we can put it in the notes for folks to go look at. Yeah, you'll probably, if, if people are on my Instagram, they're there. But yeah, so I have some other ones. So yeah, I don't know if she could wear a helmet. It's a good question. People are suggesting you could put a wig on top of the helmet. Ah, I love that idea. Because <laughs> then you could have a tiara and all of it. <laughs> you could have a tiara with the Star of David on the front. Yes, right. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is so fun. I totally lost track of where I was. What do you think of Tea for Tea? Also, oh what is God. that for those who don't know what that is? I do, but I don't know if other people do. Tea for Tea is shorthand for trans for trans. And it really became important in the era of Craigslist, RIP. Uh, the Exist, Craigslist personal ads, I should say. Craigslist still exists, but we don't have the personal ads anymore. And it was really important way for trans people to find each other in the early 2000s. Maybe even, I don't think Craigslist was a thing in the 90s, but definitely in the 2000s. And we lost it because of anti-sex work legislation. So T for T exists in opposition to SWERFs and TERFs, of course. SWERFs being sex sex worker exclusionary radical feminists who don't deserve the term feminist at all. But T for T is both super gay trans Amory when trans people love trans people. And I find it to be such a liberatory relationship dynamic. It's so amazing to be with, to be intimate with other trans people, to be with people who understand the gender journeys that we've been through, who understand dysphoria, who understand the power and importance of language, who get our jokes and have really cool things about their bodies that we get to learn about and they get to share about. And we're also just like like really hot. Trans people are so hot. I cannot, (laughs) I can't say enough and beautiful. And T for T is also beyond, I think T for T is is more than just about sex and intimacy. It's also about community care. It's about trans people looking out for trans people. It's about creating trans family. It's about mutual aid. It's about GoFundMes and supporting each other's surgery funds and and helping each other through hard times. Like we, it's a survival mechanism. It's kosher law for trans people. And yeah, so it's T for T is history. T for T is sex and T for T is community. It's like the pot at the end of the rainbow, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And each coin is a different kind of trans person. That's so great. On the topic of that, 
I will briefly mention that I'm actually in the process of <clears throat> with some other trans friends starting a Twitch stream team whose focus is raising mu direct mutual aid for trans people's gender confirmation surgeries. So we're like literally organizing around that exact thing you just mentioned. And the whole point is to do streams like this and video game streams and whatever other kind of streams we can come up with and point at. And here's the place you give money to the trans person that we're spotlighting this week who's trying to have surgery. And it's just mm -hmm. going to be an ongoing thing where we're just raising money for people's surgeries. And we do still have founder applications available for anyone who's listening or watching this later. We have, I think, seven or eight roles that are open. And we've had very few applications so far. They're all volunteer positions. That might be why. We are fun. Juliet Maddie is also on the team. But our staff bios are releasing this week while the recording is live. So if anyone wants to go look at our Instagram and see our pictures and how cute we are, we're fun. It's fun. And we're also not asking for a ridiculous amount of hours from people. So even though they are like professional roles, it's not like... It's not a job amount of time expectation. That would be unreasonable. We're just doing the best with the volunteer hours we have. And who knows, maybe eventually we'll get attention and get money to make it a fancier, bigger thing. But for now, at least while we're very much in startup mode, everyone is volunteer. No one's getting paid, not even me. And I started the whole thing. The goal isn't for the organizers to make money. The goal is to support trans people who are seeking these confirmation surgeries because we know how powerful it is, what a huge impact it makes in terms of self-esteem and wellness to have gender-affirming care. And so that's the soapbox I'm dancing around on these days. Someone's got to do agroforestry so that I can do this thing so that we can have trans people who have had top surgery and also have air to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, we need a livable planet. Yes. Yes, so good. <laughs> it's so good. Oh my gosh. Okay, let's see. My last sort of assorted question before my wrap-up questions are, who are your trans icons? Mm, I love this question. When I first came out, I was voracious for trans music. And so I very quickly found Kim Petras in 2019 and love Kim has been like such a, just if you need someone to feel help you feel good help you feel sexy help you feel like a party animal Kim is there for you so she's definitely on my list and then in a more serious way I have really found people who are like political to be really important to me so like in particular I've been like following and following closely the work of Chase Strangio who is a trans lawyer for the ACLU, who has actually been hand, like on the ground involved in countering um, the, the spate of, of anti-trans legislation that's happening in over half of the country. If, if y'all don't know Chase Strangio, follow him on, on Instagram, follow him on Twitter. If you wanna be up on, it is pretty depressing, but he's also fierce and it's and funny and is doing so much work for our community. And I think we all owe it to ourselves to know what's going on. And then in tandem with Chase, I've other people doing important political and, and media work. I'd say all the folks at Translash Media, which is run by Amara Jones, black trans woman, her reporting is phenomenal. She has an entire mini series, which she calls the anti-trans hate machine, which go, which like, is incredible investigative journalism tracing these anti-trans laws back to 
the Christian fundamentalist donors and like by name and like it's such important information for us to know about. Also Raquel Willis, another black trans woman who does incredible media projects right now is doing some incredible work focusing on um, like body autonomy for trans people and sharing and producing some incredibly beautiful stories about access, access for abortion and HRT and and really, really focusing on trans youth, which is amazing. Those are like, yeah, probably at the moment, my top four trans icons. I love Laverne Cox and I'm drawing blanks at the moment, but those are the people I listed are like definitely fuel me. R.I.P. Sophie, miss you so much. Folks who don't know Sophie the musician passed away in 20, I think 2020 or 2021. I think it's 2021. Yeah, that's a good, I think that's a good list. I'm trying to scribble notes. I should have expected that a PhD candidate would give me a veritable uh, bibliography of resources to go look at. Can you spell the lawyer's name, Chase Strangio? Yeah, C-H-A-S-E. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to chase you, mm-hmm. and Strangio, S T R A N G I O. Awesome. Maybe after the show, I can get links to socials and things so folks can follow up later. What? Oh gosh, what great content you're sharing with us today. This is so exciting. Okay, so just two more little wrap up questions. Can you share an experience with gender euphoria with all of us? Yes. Just trying to like figure out which one. Like I said before, drag was a major source of gender euphoria, but I, I do drag not that often, maybe four times a year. T for T has been very gender euphoric for me. I'm recently in a, a T for T relationship, and that has been super euphoric for me because I'm being very intimate with someone who is like my same gender. And that has just, I don't know. Uh, I just love that I've gotten gayer this year and I love that that it's had that effect. You, you don't always know, but that has definitely been a source of euphoria just because it, it makes me feel really comfortable in my body. And it's even allowed me to feel comfortable in things that maybe would have given me dysphoria. There's mm-hmm. so many layers of, of comfort and security in that are really easing to, the, to, to my mind. And it's just like really cute, like two trans women going out on a date. It's just like that. Yeah, that's my gender. That's very euphoric. Like, definitely a trans lesbian. Yeah. And I love to get, I'm a high femme. I love getting glitzed and glammed. So anytime I get a chance to go out to a drag show or out in the town and I get to put on a dress and some like really nice makeup like that. For me, that does it. That's very nice and get compliments and I like all that external validation. I'm a Leo, so very self-centered, self-absorbed, love my appearance. And I think the world deserves to see me. So, I'm a quadruple Leo. I relate. That's <laughs> so fun. What would you like to make sure folks know about your perspective on gender and non-binary slash trans issues? If there was any one little soundbite or chunk of things you'd want to make sure folks heard, what would it be? That's a great question. What do I want folks to know about my position on gender and trans issues, like political issues, social issues? Or if there was like one one like 30 second thing mm-hmm. that summarized mm-hmm. this entire conversation. If someone doesn't see the whole interview and they just see one clip yeah. of you talking, what do you want to make sure you say to everybody? Yeah, I want to say that Trans is beautiful. Trans lives are sacred. We have a commitment to 
building community. I hope that you love yourself and find love for yourself and have fun, turn heads, glitz and glam, defy the categories. They don't exist. They're not real, but you are real. That's so wonderful. I love it. Is there anything else you want to share with, with the audience before we do our thank yous and wrap up? I have one little small fun factoid that I think is pertinent. Let's hear it. Which is that I have the same birthday as Harry Potter, <laughs> which I think is very fun because it just makes me so happy to know that there's someone out there who was just born to fuck with JKR. You're much prettier than Harry Potter. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Friends, thank you so much, Samantha Bosco, for being here on the show. It has been a complete delight for those who would like to connect, drop follows, drop money and in gratitude. You can catch Samantha on Venmo. Sam underscore Bosco, S-A-M underscore B-O-S-C-O. On Instagram, you can find her personal Instagram at Samantha underscore Sunrise, or you can find Ginger Vicious at Ginger Vicious. I... Let's see, where is that? So just so folks know about what's coming up on the show, next week we're going to have Alexis Van Damme on the show. Alexis is a actor and is trans femme identified and was a recommendation from dear friend of the community, Juice. Jennifer would like to thank our guest for being on this podcast. Please feel free to join us live on Twitch on Mondays. Check out the replays on YouTube on Fridays and keep an eye on your favorite podcasting platforms for edited audio only versions. As Nefertiti says, trans rights are human rights. That's right. Thank you.